Welcome to the October 21st episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Isaiah 62 through 64 and 1 Timothy chapter 1, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 1. First um, and 2 Timothy are phenomenal books. They are rich. Um, they Paul is writing to a, a, a man that is yet much younger than him. Uh, but Paul has this is one of the guys that Paul has mentored. You know, he has worked with Timothy. He took him on a missionary trip, and uh, you know, he assigned him to the church at Ephesus. And uh, Timothy, you know, had some weaknesses. He had some um, deficiencies in his uh, in his uh, pastoral skills. It appears that you know he was someone that maybe was a bit timid in his uh, in his demeanor, and so Paul would have to encourage him uh, in that to be strong. Uh, but in these two books, I mean, we've just got a wealth of biblically rich theologically rich, practically rich material. Uh, it's in these two, book, two books that we read about the qualifications of pastors and deacons. It's in uh, these two books that we get to hear once again of the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul for the gospel. Um, it's in, in fact, the, the, uh, the letter of 2 Timothy. Um, most scholars would agree that that was the very last letter that Paul wrote before he was martyred for the faith. And uh, so it's that book where he said, I've kept the faith, I've finished the course. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it's just, it's great two books. So let's let's dig in. First Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, we just have the introduction. He said, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Lord, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul identifies himself as an apostle. Um, he does not identify himself as a slave of Christ, um, as he does in about half of his letters. Uh, he describes himself as one who has authority, as one sent who has the authority that is uh, that was a part of the apostolic um, position. And so he said he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So he said, this wasn't my idea to be an apostle. Um, this was God's idea. This was Jesus' idea, and they commanded me into this position. And so uh, Paul's position of authority over Timothy and over the churches uh, was something that the Lord had given to him. He had not aspired to it himself. In verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. And so Paul uh, got a vision of a man to go over into Macedonia where Philippi and Thessalonica and, you know, all of the Berea and all of those cities are. Um, Paul had a vision to go over there, but he instructed Timothy 
uh, to stay behind in Ephesus, at the church in Ephesus. And it says to instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. Okay, so as we read about the, the kind of things that uh, Paul was going to tell Timothy, it seems as if, once again, it was uh, Jews. It was uh, Old Testament uh, Old Testament uh, law uh, people that were of the law that insisted on maintaining that um, uh, position of the law, but also they were looking to the law as a means of salvation rather than looking to Jesus. And so they were constantly trying to go into churches and undermine them. And so Paul said, I told you, Timothy, to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. So you're going to teach and you're going to tell people who are who are teaching false doctrine to stop it. You're going to tell those who may contemplate it not to do it. So essentially, part of the pastoral job is to maintain the theological purity of a church. You know, that they are to watch out for anything that is false, and the greater the heresy, the more actively um, they go against it, right? So he said, I instructed uh, you to remain in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine, verse 4, or to pay attention to myths and e- endless genealogies. Okay, so we could be talking about, um, once again, uh, the Jews and um a great people, you know, they're God's chosen people, but yet uh, they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't receive Jesus whenever he came as the Messiah. And so they were focused on all sorts of uh, things that did not pertain to the gospel, distracted from the gospel, or took people away from the gospel. And so he said, you know, just watch out for them. He said, these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. You know, he said, you know, if you allow these things to come into the church there at Ephesus, then it's going to send your church, your congregation, the people under your care off into all sorts of discussions and debates and everything else that are going to take them away from the gospel. He said, Timothy, I want you to focus on the faith once delivered, once and for all delivered to the saints. He said these things that they're going to bring in are going to promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Timothy, you focus on faith. Now, one of the things that uh, whenever we see the word faith in the New Testament, we need to realize that it is, it is used basically two different ways. One, it is used as the act of resting in the truth. And sometimes faith is used as the body of truth, the faith delivered to the saints. And so whenever you see the word faith, you need to look at, okay, you need to determine which one of those is it talking about? Is it talking about the body of truth? Is it talking about the faith as in the the doctrine, the theology of the church? Or is it talking about the trusting in Jesus, that faith, resting, trusting in Jesus uh, for salvation? And uh, so uh, in verse 4, when he said, which operates by faith, he's obviously talking about the second option of that, um, that operates by faith, that comes by trusting in Jesus. 
Verse 5. Now, the goal of our instruction. So, Paul just said, we're not just instructing. We have something that we are aiming at. We want fruit, and the fruit is this. This is what we're aiming at. Now, the goal of our instruction is love. So that's that's the end result. You know, Paul said what we are doing is we are teaching in such a way that we know that it is settling into hearts and people are responding appropriately when it produces love. Um why is that so so important? Because Jesus said the two greatest commands are love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so Paul said that as we instruct people, the goal is love. Love for God, love for others. But he clarifies love. He said, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart. So a heart that is living in accordance with God's word. It is pure in that it has been cleansed by Jesus, but that cleansing is being maintained in an obedient life. He said, so we're aiming at love, and the love comes from people who have received the uh, the righteousness of Christ and are living lives of holiness. And when they sin, they immediately confess it, repent of it, and get back on the road to holiness. So love from a pure heart. And then the second thing he says is from a good conscience. And so it's not just that they are pursuing holiness, but the conscience is pure. The conscience is good. It's clean. You know, it's good in that it's active. They're not shutting it down. They're not sinning and then shutting their conscience down. They've got a good, healthy conscience, but their conscience isn't bothering them. So it's not just that they're chasing after holiness. They've got a conscience that is is not convicting them. So love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That means these people are genuinely trusting in Jesus, not just as a past tense event, but are continuing to trust in Jesus. Paul said, this is what our goal is. We want people to get to a point of love, and the people that are getting to that point of loving God with everything they've got and loving their neighbor as they love themselves, those are the people that are holy that are pursuing obedience, that have a conscience that is working. They haven't shut it down. They haven't seared it, but it is working and it's not convicting them. And they are daily, moment by moment, trusting in Jesus. Paul says in verse 6, some have departed from these. You know, he said some are, are not aiming at this. They're, they're not, that they have uh, appeared on the front end to be sincere believers, but they've departed. And, and it, you know, one of the, the biblical truths is if someone departs from these things and stays away from these things, then the longer they stay away, the more we come to believe that they were never saved. Now, can a Christian stray? Yes. Can a Christian stray from the truth for a prolonged period of time? Well, yes, that's possible. It is certainly possible. It's, it's not only possible, it happens all the time that Christians at least momentarily stray into sin. But the longer someone strays and the farther away they go and the, long, you know, the longer they stay there, the more we tend to come to the conviction that maybe the, the work of salvation was never 
in their hearts. And so Paul said, you know, some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussions. You know, he said, you know, they they don't get it. They don't understand. They may not even be saved. Verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law. So they want to be influencers. But he said, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on, he said they want to be influencers and they don't even have a clue because their life is demonstrating that they don't understand it and they're not living it. That's one of the dangers of a church is too quickly putting people into positions of influence, specifically teaching, if that person hasn't embraced what they are trying to proclaim. Um it's a dangerous thing because they could not only mess themselves up as they are straying away from what is true, but they could mess other people up. And uh, so verse 8, but we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. And so he said there's, uh, he's implying that these people are using the law, but they're using it wrong. Um, and and he wanted to say he he's saying to Timothy now now don't think that the law is bad it's good let, let me read to you verses nine through eleven and we'll talk about that point he said we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person but for the lawless and rebellious okay well let me let me actually stop there for a second what does that mean we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person but for the lawless and rebellious. So if you are someone who is saved and you are chasing after Jesus, this says that we know the law is not meant for you. The the law of, of not just the Old Testament, but all of the commands in the New Testament, they're not meant for you. So what does that mean? Does that mean we discredit God's word? No, no, that's not what Paul is saying. Let me clarify. Let's say that you are someone who... Um, have never killed someone in your life, and you never intend to kill someone. You never will kill someone. Now, the laws in our cities, you know, uh, say that murder is wrong, and if you murder someone, then you will be tried. And, you know, if it's premeditated, you know, and all of this stuff, then you will go to jail for a very long time. You may even lose your life, okay? So that law exists, but let me ask you a question. You're someone that's never murdered someone, and you never will murder someone. So do you wake up every single morning and read the law uh, th- that your city has in its code, you know, the laws that are on the books? Do you read the law, you shall not murder? And is that in the forefront of your mind all day long, I can't murder anybody? No, you, you don't even think about that law. Why? Because you're not ever going to break that law. That law is not in the forefront of your mind because you wouldn't think of doing it. And so the law is is good in that it convicts those who do murder people, but those who are not living, you know, lawless lives, you don't really even have to think about the law because you're living it, right? So so that's that's how we are to understand the Old Testament. The the Bible is good. The commandments are good. But I'm telling you that what Paul said about how if we live according to the Spirit, that, uh, you know, we don't have to live according to the law. What he is saying is if we are serious in our walk with the Lord, if we are serious in our walk with the Lord, that we love him, that we are reading his word, 
and we desire to obey it, but not see it as a standard where we're just going to try to live barely above it. No, we're chasing after Jesus, and we desire for him to have every single millimeter of our heart and of our life, then the law is something we don't really have to think about and worry about. We don't have to worry about the law that says you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall honor your father and mother and all of these things. We really don't even have to think about that because we're doing those things. The law comes into play whenever we sin. Oh, the law reaches out and grabs us and says, you just did something wrong. Now, for the believer, our response is not to wallow in guilt, but to immediately confess it, repent of it, make amends if necessary, and get back on the road to holiness. And so that's what he's saying. He's not discrediting the law righteous people, those who are chasing after Jesus, and they're serious about their walk with the Lord, he's not saying that the law is bad, the law of God is bad. He is saying you really don't even have to think about it, because if you're chasing after the first two greatest commands to love the Lord your God with everything you've got, and you're loving your neighbor as you love yourself, then inadvertently you're going to end up obeying God's word. It's, it's not something, you know, all of the endless commands, they're not necessarily going to consume your mind because you're chasing after Jesus. Of course, you're not going to break those things. So with that explanation, and hopefully that makes sense, let me read verses 9 through 11. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God who was entrusted, which was entrusted to me. And so that's what Paul is saying. He is not discrediting the law. He's saying the law of God only comes into play for those who break it. But if you're serious about following the Lord, if you are living in the Spirit, if you are resting in the Spirit, if you recognize that if you are saved, God's Holy Spirit it resides inside of you, and you are spending time in God's Word, loving the Lord Jesus, and desiring to obey Him and to follow Him, then you don't have to wake up every single morning worried about the law and which ones you may break. You're just going to chase after Jesus, and the law is kind of like something there in the background that's really only going to come into play whenever you sin, right? And so that's what he's saying. Verse 12, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me, empowered me, because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. And... uh, so, you know, the, these are some verses that, that used to bother me whenever I was contemplating on whether or not God was calling me to be a pastor, and then even after it, these verses bothered me, because I was thinking, he cons- Paul said, he considered me faithful. This is one of the things, and he's going to say something in just a few moments uh, in the next verse that really bothered me. But, uh, you know, Paul said, because he considered me faithful— 
I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, in my heart, I know that my heart has not always been faithful. Uh, And, uh, you know, so I was looking at this and thinking, well, Paul got called into the ministry because the Lord considered him faithful and he appointed him to the ministry. You know, and I, I know that my heart, and I know that there have been things I've said and thoughts I've had and things I've done, and, you know, and, and so it was all relying upon me. But I then I came to realize that Paul was a blasphemer before he was saved. He was killing Christians before he was saved. And so when the Lord considered him faithful, It was not Paul who was faithful. It was Jesus in Paul that God saw as being someone who would be faithful to the gospel. It was Jesus in Paul. I'm telling you, Christian, that if you uh, stumble and fall into discouragement and despair and... uh, you know, self-guilt and self-inflicted guilt and all sorts of things because you realize you don't measure up, well, that can be a good thing if it's short-lived and if it drives us to the cross. But if we are honest, none of us measure up. And so where is our worth found? Where is our salvation found? Where is our righteousness found? It is found in Jesus. And so Paul is not saying, hey, I was faithful apart from Jesus. No, he said, or God, he said, God considered me faithful. God reckoned me as that. God considered me and, and credited that to my account because of Jesus. Verse 13, even though I was a former blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. And then this is another phrase that plagued me. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. Paul said, I I got mercy from the Lord because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, (laughs) I didn't act out of ignorance. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. I knew about the thoughts I was thinking, the things I was saying, the things I was doing. And uh, that plagued me until I realized that uh, what Paul is saying is, is that if someone is an unbeliever by virtue of the fact that they are an unbeliever, they are ignorant of truth. I mean, the Bible says in another place that the, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. And so what Paul is saying was, is yes, I knew what I was doing before I was saved, and I knew what I was doing whenever I was going after Christians and putting them in jail and, and all of this, but really my eyes were blind to the truth. I didn't understand Jesus. I didn't understand love and forgiveness and all of those things. And so before I was saved, I was in a very real way ignorant of the truth. And so that's what he's saying. I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. And so once again, if we go to a point and say, oh, I knew what I was doing before I was saved. And so God can't give me mercy because Paul got mercy because he acted in ignorance. I was not acting in ignorance. I knew what I was doing. I just want you to realize that it is ignorance in unbelief. It is 
oh, I was not saved. I didn't have the Holy Spirit within me. I did not understand spiritual truth. I didn't understand and value Jesus. I didn't, because I was an unbeliever, I was ignorant. And so that's what he's talking about. I receive mercy because I was not saved when I was doing those things. Now, does that mean that we cannot get mercy and grace when we are saved and do some really bad things? No, no, we we live in, if we are saved, the Bible says we have grace upon grace. God continues to lavish out his grace on us. But Paul is, is saying that he got mercy because God delights to give mercy and grace to unbelievers, to people who don't know. So verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says in verse 14 that the Lord, just like a a gushing flood that just came and overtook him, the grace of the Lord overflowed. So he said, I received grace and more grace and more grace. God just gave me what I clearly did not deserve and gave me an abundance of grace. But verse 14 says that Jesus didn't just give him all of that enormous grace that he gives to you and me too, friend. But he says he also gave him faith and he gave him love. And so the faith, the ability to trust in Jesus, not just for the point of salvation, but to grow in that faith, that's a gift from Jesus, according to verse 14. And the ability to grow in our love for the Lord Jesus and to grow more and more and more in that love, the first greatest commandment, and then to love others and to grow in that willingness to love and sacrifice and give to those, particularly those that are in need for others, That comes from Jesus as well. All of it comes from Jesus. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world not to reach out to those who were good, Jesus even looked at the Pharisees one time and they said, hey, you know, we're, I mean, this is my translation. He said, oh, we're doing pretty good. You know, you didn't come to give us anything, did you? And Jesus essentially said, you know, a doctor only goes after someone who is sick. He said, I did not come to call the righteous, air quotes, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was saying that if you believe that you were righteous apart from me, I can do nothing with you, nothing with you. But if you are someone that recognizes that, yes, my conscience slays me, I am convicted over what I have done, I know that I have broken laws, I know that I am not living the way that I should, I know that this is wrong for me to think this way and talk this way and do these things, regardless of how bad or not so bad those things are, if there is conviction and we realize that we are a sinner, then we are the people that Jesus came for. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul said, and I am the worst of them. Now, was Paul technically the worst? I don't believe so. What's going on here when he says, and I am the worst of them? Let me share this with you. Jesus is light. The Bible calls him that, says that of him. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, so let's just say that you are out in 
um, out outside at night. It's dark. You're out in the woods or whatever else, and there is a fire that is blazing in the center of a camp. And let's say that, uh, you know, you, during the course of that day, have just really just uh, gotten yourself dirty and sweaty and there's mud all over you and everything. Maybe you were hiking or, you know, climbing up uh, a cliff or whatever, and you're just all filthy. Well, when you're out in the dark, you may smell yourself, but you can't see all of the dirt that's on you. You can't see how filthy you are because you're in the dark. But the closer you get to that campfire, the closer you get to the light, the more you realize as you look, oh my goodness, I'm filthy. And then you get closer, oh my goodness, I can't believe how dirty my pants are, my shirt is, my, look at my hands, my hands are filthy. Until you were right up there at that fire and you can feel the blaze, all of a sudden you realize that you are filthy. It's as we get closer to the light, the more aware we become of sin. Things that seemed like they weren't so bad, the closer we get to the light, the more we realize how offensive it is. That's, I believe, what Paul is saying. He is not saying that he really was the worst of sinners. He was saying from his vantage point, the way he saw himself as he was chasing after Jesus and becoming more like Jesus and getting closer to the light of Jesus. Paul was looking at himself and realizing, oh my goodness, there's so much more work to be done. Not only all of the big things that I did before I was saved, but I continue to struggle in things. Friend, I'm telling you, the closer you get to Jesus in your relationship with him, the more aware of sin you will be. If you don't know that principle, you're going to think that as you were getting closer to Jesus, that maybe you're falling away because you just feel like you've got just so many areas of your life you need to work on, and, and you're going to feel as if, as you're getting close to him, that you're actually falling away. But that's not true. The closer you get to Jesus in your love for him, your desire to obey him, your joy in him, the closer you get to him, the more aware of personal sin you will have. Paul said, I am the worst of sinners. Friend, I'm telling you, you and I are going to feel that way. We're going to continue maybe to feel that way or to some extent feel as if, oh, maybe we don't feel like we're the worst of sinners, but we're going to feel like, oh my goodness, there's so many areas in my life that still need to be worked on. Well, that's just going to happen as we move toward Jesus. But the beauty is, is that when we see those sins, we can do something about it and we can invite God's Holy Spirit to join us in the work of getting rid of those sins and replacing them with good things. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason. So he said, while ago, I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief, but now he's going to say something else. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so now Paul says, I receive mercy. Why? So that when people look at me and realize how bad I was before I was saved, and even as I am saved, continue to have things that are getting worked on, then people will look at me and say, wow, 
If God can save the Apostle Paul and make him right and and do something so incredibly beautiful in his life, then maybe there's hope for me. I, I think the church, our churches do people no favors whenever we try to dress ourselves up and aren't honest with our stories. Now, I'm not talking about how uh, people need to bring out their dirty laundry and talk about it all the time in churches. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if the Lord has given you or someone else victory over a sin, maybe there was something bad there in your past and you feel as if that the Lord is giving you permission to share that, who's to say that sharing that wouldn't allow someone else to say, oh my goodness, I never would have thought. I'm looking at you and I'm seeing someone that is serious in their walk with the Lord and you love the Lord Jesus, and I would have never thought that you would have ever done whatever it is that you've done. But then they see, oh my goodness, now I see the journey that you've been on to go from what you were to what you are now. See, that's powerful. That's the power of a testimony. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 16. Paul is saying, I am an open book and I am someone who am sharing what I was before I was saved, and then showing that Jesus continues to work godliness and holiness in me. And as people look at me and hear my testimony, they will see the power of the gospel and what it can do in the life of someone who was messed up. And they may consider giving their heart to the Lord Jesus as well. Verse 17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he just couldn't help but offer up a word of praise in verse 17. Verse 18, Timothy, my son. So now he directs Timothy, directs it at Timothy. He's been talking to Timothy, but now he says his name to kind of just get his attention. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. And so prophecies, you know, there may have been at, uh, you know, before Timothy was um, maybe before he was saved, maybe, you know, as Paul recognized that he was someone who was uh, would be a great asset in the ministry, and so there may have been prophecies said over him, Timothy, the Lord is revealing that you are going to be someone that God uses greatly to bring people to the knowledge of the truth, and then to help those that are saved to grow in their understanding and experience of the Lord Jesus and holiness. So there were prophecies, we don't know what they were, but prophecies that were said about them. And Paul says, because of this, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fights. Okay, so is Timothy a boxer? No, (laughs) he's not a fighter. He's a pastor. And yet Timothy is saying, fight the good. And and yet Paul is saying, fight the good fight. Friend, I'm telling you, October, and we're still in this month, is Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, I want you to make sure your pastor knows that you are praying for him. There are many things that keep him and his wife up at night that you don't know about and they cannot share 
about things that are going on in the church. You know, just as as uh, you know, I gave the illustration a while ago of how someone may have said, "Hey, you know, I see how godly you are, and I never would have suspected that you were like that." You know, and look at how God has saved you. Well, I'm telling you that almost certainly in your church, there are people that appear so holy and they've got it all together, but they're wounded. And so they're lashing out and, you know, at at people that they believe it's safe to lash out at. And generally it's considered to be the pastor or his wife or their kids, because the assumption is, is that they can't do anything back or... It's, uh, you know, someone who the pastor had to speak to about a, a sin, you know, maybe that it's some grievous thing that they're doing, or maybe their children are doing, and so the pastor reached out to say, hey, I love you, and I love you so much, I, I have to address this, and you've got to stop this. And so instead of repenting, they got angry. Or maybe it's, you know, another scenario, you've just got power players in the church and they love to to work behind the scenes and so the pastor is struggling. I'm just telling you, there are tons of things that go that that pastors and their wives know very well about that they're dealing with behind the scenes and they give you the smile when they go to church. But if you were someone that they could fully trust then they may share things with you that they are dealing with in the church even right now that uh, that you wouldn't even realize are going on in your church. And so when Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight, yeah, pastoring is a fight. It's something where you are not fighting with your fist, you're fighting on your knees, you're, it's just, it's a struggle that you just never fully win, and even if you win a battle, you're in a war, and eventually something else is going to rise up. So this is October uh, and Pastor Appreciation Month. Let your pastor, let your pastor's wife know you are actively daily praying for them. Uh, they will be so grateful that you uh, you said that. Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. And uh, so there were two individuals and Paul called them out, you know, um, he, he wasn't afraid to call out names and there's other names that he's going to mention um, <coughs> <coughs> sorry about that, but uh, but they had made a shipwreck of their faith. Were they saved and then messed up, or were they appearing to be saved and then their actions demonstrated that they never were truly saved? Well, we don't quite know, but we know that uh, you know Paul, using his apostolic authority, removed them from the congregation, out from the protective umbrella of the church, so that Satan would have access to them, right? There's a protection within a congregation, a spiritual protection within a congregation. As long as people are in good favor in the church, there's a spiritual protection there. But when someone engages in sin that is so offensive, so grievous, and they're unrepentant, and, it, and, and they refuse to, to make it right, then they need you need to go through the steps of Matthew 18, and if they do not respond favorably, remove them from the protective umbrella of the congregation, remove them from the favor of the church so that Satan can have access to them. 
And uh, ideally, they do come to a place of repentance. They make it right. They come back to the church, and the church is like the prodigal son's father. They run to them and embrace them and welcome them back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you so much that... uh, that we get to read about uh, passages of Scripture that give us insight into church life, that give us insight into pastoring, that give us insight into the gospel, that give us insight into how you lavish grace upon us and how, Jesus, it is you in us that makes us worthy of the Father's love and grace and mercy. Thank you so much for your word, Lord, and I pray that we would actively, daily spend time in your word, not just reading, casually reading, but studying it so that we can develop a mind that thinks biblically and uh, knowing that as we think, uh, that's how we're going to act, that's how we're going to behave. Lord, we thank you for this day and pray that you would uh, walk through it with us as we know you had planned. Um, and pray that in each of the moments of this day that we would enjoy you and that we would uh, glorify you, that we would, in our actions, in our speech, in everything, that we would demonstrate how good of a God it is that we serve and that others would see you in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.